All right, so Mark 3:20 through 35 is a text fundamentally about misunderstandings. At least that's what it looks like on the surface. These people don't understand who Jesus is, but the text, the heart of it, what's really going on is accusations. This is a text about accusations, and there's two accusations that challenge who Jesus claims to be. The first is this, Jesus has gone mad. The second accusation is that Jesus is Satan himself. Obviously, neither accusation is correct, and so today we're going to focus on these two accusations and how Jesus responds and what his response tells us about who he is. Uh, So a quick recap of Mark's Gospels in order. Uh, Prior to the story at hand, Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God, and his message is really simple. It's repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Gospel of Mark attests that in the person of Jesus, God is making a personal appearance. And the kingdom of God is at hand because God is incarnate and his reign is extending through this person, Jesus, and everyone is invited to participate in this kingdom by repenting and believing and by aligning with this message of the gospel. And it all is well through the message of Mark so far. We see bodies being healed. We see demons being cast out. This starts to cause controversy with some of the religious elites of Jesus' day. And so one of the things that happens is, Mark, is uh, Jesus does a healing on the Sabbath, and so the rulers at that time depart, and they plot how to destroy Jesus. And so tension is boiling up to the surface in Mark's narrative, and that's where we find ourselves going into this text. So let's look at the first accusation. Uh, Mark tells us a crowd is gathered yet again around Jesus, and there's so much need, so much activity, that he doesn't even have time to eat. And this news reaches his family, and so concerned, uh, they attempt to stop Jesus. They try to seize him, according to Mark, and uh, they thought that Jesus had gone out of his mind. The Greek is actually quite forceful. One scholar says it could be translated, Jesus has gone berserk. Jesus the berserker. So why would his family think this? Well, first, it seems that Jesus has given up comfort. He seems more concerned about the well-being of other people than his own well-being. He's not eating. It seems that Jesus has given up security. He had left home. He had left his vocation as a carpenter, and he's become this wandering preacher, this uncertain future, and he's causing all sorts of controversy. Finally, he gave up safety. He started getting into this controversy, and rumor has it that now the authorities of his day are plotting to kill him. And so from the outside looking in, Jesus had abandoned comfort, safety, and security, the very things we all strive for in life. And perhaps his family is rightfully asking, has he gone mad? Imagine someone in your family doing this. If my sister started claiming that she was a religious superstar, that she heard directly from God, put on some special cape and tinfoil hat, and was on the street preaching a message and was so consumed with that message that she was ceasing to eat... I would probably think she was out of her mind. I'd probably be quite like Jesus' family. Now, before the family arrives on the scene, Mark goes to a different accusation, right? A second accusation comes Jesus' way, and it says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. And this is an interesting note on Mark's account. So far, Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel has focused in the Galilee region. And so he's been preaching the gospel, and this gospel has reached and spread all the way to Jerusalem now that the elite of the religious elites have to come down and look into this for themselves. And previously, there was a controversy about Jesus and healing on the Sabbath, but this time, they want to come and question Jesus about exorcism. And more precisely, they're wondering, what is the source of Jesus' power? 
how does he actually cast out demons? Now, their, ex, their, their accusation against Jesus at this point uh, is far more harsh than what his, his family is thinking. Jesus is out of his mind. Well, the scribes say Jesus is possessed by Elzebul, and that by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. First, there's an affirmation intertwined in this accusation. They affirm things that have been happening in Jesus' ministry. Right? This isn't all just hearsay. Jesus has been casting out demons. They affirm that this is factual. Yet, their accusation tries to discredit Jesus. They try to discredit the miracles themselves. And they, they try to say, These, this is happening because Jesus is the embodiment of evil. He's Satan. And so Satan must be putting on some sort of ruse to de- deceive people and to lead them astray. This is a pretty wild explanation, what do you think? And, and, and quite hurtful and cruel. Can you imagine if someone stood across from you and actually accused you of being Satan? And imagine this story, right? Imagine being there. Imagine you're, you're in this home and Jesus is preaching and there are people gathered and then there's this group of powerful religious elites saying that he's Satan and if they're right, they could be justified throwing rocks, you know, and, and there's this tension and this fear and these accusations. This is a very tense situation. You could, you could feel the tension. And like the scribes, have you ever been so convinced of being right that in your rightness you were blind to being wrong? And I'm talking not just sort of wrong, like flat out, hands down, wrong. Have you ever misplaced a car key? Have you ever misplaced a car key for eight hours? When my wife and I first got married, uh, we lived in Orlando, Florida, and we shared a car. We only had one car, which in Orlando, that's ridiculous because there's no public transit and everything's like massive urban sprawl. And uh, we had to be really particular about the car schedule because trading cars and all that and get up at 8 a.m. and couldn't find the car key for the life of me. And so, of course, it was Julia's fault. And so we're turning... You know, the house upside down, looking everywhere. I even acu- like accused our neighbor of stealing the car key. It was a, <laughs> not a very Christian thing to do. And, you know, people come by, like, lending us rides and kind of lend an examining eye. And they're like, all is not well at the Stern household. And so, you know, evening has come, and it's been a terrible, terrible day. And Julia's like, well, why should we, we should just try praying again. And my response it was not noble at all. I said, what is God going to do? It's not like he's going to materialize the key. or it. Um, And so I sat down, and as I sat down, I started to laugh because I felt the car key in my back pocket. Uh, so for eight hours, that car key had been in my back pocket. I was so, so terribly wrong, and I had the key the entire time. It was right in front of me. And I completely missed it. This is what's going on with the scribes. They're so wrong about Jesus. They're standing right in front of him, and they completely miss it. They couldn't be more wrong in their accusations. And now it's Jesus' turn to respond. He waits patiently, and he responds with so much tact and grace, but he serves up the zinger of a parable. He says in uh, Mark here, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, 
but it's coming to an end. He knocks down their accusation with just simple logic. Look, he says, if, if Satan is fighting Satan, this is some sort of internal strife. This is civil war. And if that's the case, all we have to do is step back and watch Satan self-destruct. It's good logic, but this isn't the case. This isn't what ha- is happening. He continues, no one can enter a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. So he's saying Satan is the strong man. And Jesus is making the claim to have bound the strong man. And hence, he can plunder the strong man's house. He can cast out demons because Satan has no authority before the Son of God. And all is well so far. I mean, frankly, this is the sort of explanation we would expect. The more disconcerting part of this text, if we're honest, is verses 28, 29, and 30, where Jesus goes on and says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. So this is a part of the sermon where we have to hit pause for a little bit and, and go down a tangent and talk about this text. This is an awkward text. It makes us uncomfortable. It leaves us scratching our heads, wondering, you know, this doesn't seem consistent with what I know of the scriptures. The first half of Jesus' words are consistent with what we would say is the gospel. All sins are forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. The gospel tells us that on the cross, Jesus wiped out all sins for those who placed their faith in him and that there's no depth or height that we can go to escape from the forgiveness and the love of God. And then the word blasphemy here has uh, several usages. In this instance, uh, it's more like slander, right? Uh, It it could be paraphrased, you know, all sins will be forgiven along with every foolish and harmful thing people say to one another, which is great for someone like me with a constant case of foot and mouth disease. Uh, But then Jesus seems to undo what he said. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, which is it? Are all sins forgivable? Or is this, is there an exemption clause? Is there one sin that is not forgivable. It doesn't seem like it can be both. So there's three points I want to make. The first, we need to define what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Jesus' second use of the word blasphemy here is in the traditional biblical sense. Blasphemy against God, slandering God. And in the Torah, this is punishable by death. This is a serious charge. And Mark narrates what he thinks blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means. He says, they had said... He has an unclean spirit, which is a slight understatement. The scribes actually said that they think Jesus is Satan, that he is the unclean spirit of unclean spirits. The Holy Spirit not only dwells in Jesus, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this, identifying God as evil, being so confused about what is good that you call it evil, and then you start to call evil good. It's a, it's a complete hardness and blindness, and it's uh, a mistaken perception of God. Eugene Boring, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. Uh, From Mark's point of view, he writes, to refuse to believe in this good news is bad enough, but to pervert it into its opposite and consider it the work of Satan rather than the work of God is the ultimate human evil. William Barclay puts it this way. 
Uh, these men had been able to look at the incarnate love of God and to think that it was the incarnate power of Satan. So next point, why, why is this sin unforgivable? I think this text actually says more about us than it says about God. I think this sin is unforgivable because to identify the very source of forgiveness as evil is to turn away from the very source of forgiveness. How can you receive forgiveness if you think the only person who can actually forgive you is evil? It's to completely misunderstand the character of God, and you cut yourself off from the very one who can offer forgiveness. You're refusing the forgiver. And yes, if you should remain there, if you should stay in this refusal, this stubborn refusal to recognize God for who he is, there is never forgiveness for you. You're on a trajectory towards eternal sin because you will always remain in your sins unless you turn to the one who can forgive them. Lastly, knowing what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, knowing what its consequences are, I want to talk to the people that are afraid they may have committed this sin. I think your concern says otherwise. Your concern shows that if you think you've sinned and if you think that sin is a sin against God and you have a conviction, a sense of guilt over that sin, that is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. This isn't about some permanent mark on your record, this one-time sin that you've made uh, that God's always going to hold over your head. The scriptures canonically, consistently uh, affirm that if you have a contrite and repentant heart, God loves to extend mercy and to extend forgiveness. And your belief that God is the one who you've sinned against, that God is the type of God who would actually want to forgive you, shows that you haven't mistaken God for being evil. If you seek forgiveness from God, he will offer it. So now let's get back to Mark. So Jesus' words here, they're a heavy-handed rebuke to the scribes. Back in chapter 2, there's this powerful event where Jesus heals a paralytic. You know the story. Uh, his friends carry him on his mat, and they, break, they climb up a roof, and they break through it and hand the friend down to Jesus. And Jesus says this, Your sins are forgiven. And then Mark says, The scribes said in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can for, forgive sins but God alone? So now here we are later in Mark chapter 3, and there's another group of scribes, and they explain that Jesus' power comes from Satan. But Jesus turns their accusation around, and the question we have to ask is, who's really blaspheming here? Not Jesus. It's actually the scribes, by identifying Jesus as Satan. The scribes are in this very precarious position. They're opposing God and are sorely mistaken about who Jesus is. So having addressed the second accusation, Mark now returns to the first accusation. Has Jesus lost his mind? Has he flipped out? His mother and his brothers and his family finally arrive and they call out to Jesus. Have you ever had this embarrassment? You know, you're somewhere you shouldn't be and your mom shows up in her minivan and uh, calls out to you. Uh, I can't even count how many times this has happened to me in the uh, sixth grade, I was at a girl's house named Chantal Hall with a couple of my friends. And there was one rule that was very clear uh, from my mother. You're not allowed to hang out at girl's house because uh, you're in the sixth grade and you should only hang out with boys. It's a decent rule. Uh, but I broke it this, this occasion and somehow my mom with her mom-like powers found out that I was at Chantal Hall's house. I have no idea how. Too afraid to call her and ask how she found out even to this day. Uh, but she pulled up in her blue Volvo station wagon and she didn't even have the decency 
to get out of the car. She just rolled down the window and started yelling from outside in her car, and I could hear it in the house, Alistair Brian Stern, you get out here right this minute. Oh, my heart sunk with embarrassment. This is the scene at hand. The people come up to Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, this is a little awkward, but, well, your mom and your brothers are here, and they're calling out to you, and... Uh, well, let's just put it, I'm just, don't shoot the messenger. They want you to go home because they think you're berserk and you're out of your mind. So uh, just telling you that. And Jesus' response is so fascinating. He almost gets kind of Kung Fu Master-esque on this uh, response. Who are my mother and my brothers? <laughs> now, if I was there, I might start to agree with, Jesus, with the crowd and the accusations. Maybe Jesus is losing his mind at this point, but not so. Mark says, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. In one swoop, Jesus radically redefines what it means to be family. And why is this important? Why does Mark record this? I think the real issue, the true debate, is over who Jesus is. Who is he? Is he Satan? Is he a madman? Is he a false prophet? Or is he actually the son of God? Is he actually the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for? This is the real issue at hand, and Jesus is the decisive factor. So his answer is not just about family. It's a redefinition of how one belongs to the kingdom of God. If you're a religious leader, if you're someone who knows the scriptures inside and out, even if you're a blood relative, and you find yourself in opposition with Jesus, you're actually opposing God. This is what this text tells us. If you think you're entitled to be inside God's home, do not look upon Jesus and identify him correctly. You're actually on the outside. But if you're among the nameless crowd, if you're among the people sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his words with a willingness to do them, then you're truly among God's family. It's important to say Jesus is drawing a hard, delineating line. There are people who are inside and outside, and, and this sometimes causes accusations from not yet believers. They say Christianity is about elitism. And you make me feel like I'm somehow lesser. This isn't what this is about. Jesus' words are actually radically inclusive. He says, whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Anyone and everyone are welcome. This is an open invitation to belong to God's family. So let me ask you something. Where do you find yourself in this story? Do you identify with Jesus' family? Do you identify with the scribes? Or do you identify with the crowd? Are you among the crowd? Do you find yourself right now asking, am I doing the will of God? This is a bit of a perplexing thing. Whoever does the will of God, and then he doesn't tell us what the will of God is. But the overarching uh, narrative in Mark shows us that the will of God is pretty straightforward. It's to repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus. It's to trust him fully. It's to love God and to love your neighbors. It's to be in a posture of continual repentance and belief. And it's not some sort of one-time deal. This is not some sort of checkbox of eternal destination. It's an ongoing, every single day sort of lifestyle. So what's God asking you today? And are you doing it? Maybe he's asking you to do something big, like move into the city or move to a different city. 
Or maybe it's to refuse a new job offer or a promotion or to walk away from a job that you know God's calling you to leave, but you don't know where the next step is. Maybe it's something more personal like asking for forgiveness because you know that you offended someone and that you are in the wrong. Or maybe it's finally being willing to extend forgiveness to that person who hurt you so badly that bitterness is now welling up in your heart. And you don't want to forgive them because you think that claims some sort of power over them, but it's really destroying you. Maybe it's something that seems small, but there's still some significance to it. Letting go of your critical attitude or stopping all the gossip that you participate in. Do you resemble someone who's willing to do whatever Jesus asks? Or do you resemble those who stand critiquing him and questioning him? Are you willing to give up that one thing that you don't want to give up if Jesus asks you to give it up? Or are you more like the scribes making blunt accusations? They see lives being put back together, broken bodies being healed, tormented souls being freed from demonic oppression, and they attribute it to Satan. We should be very careful about wrongly attributing the source of change in our lives. When we see lives put back together, who do we often attribute it to? So-and-so cleaned up their act. Right? He got himself into the, into the steps. He got himself into AA. He's the one who pulled himself up by the bootstraps. You know, or, or you finally get that five extra pounds off. It was your hard work. It was your dieting. It was your going to the gym. Often we attribute change to ourselves. But that, this is, that's self-idolatry. It's pride. This text and, and the Gospels consistently show us that any positive change in our lives, any sort of goodness, any, any sense of common grace, is because of the empowering presence and transformative love of Christ dwelling in us, changing us, molding us into his image. More importantly, it's, it's very dangerous to be mistaken about Jesus' identity like the scribes are. Who do you say he is? I'm often surprised at the answers I get in Vancouver. But I will admit, I've never heard someone flat out, I think Jesus is Satan. But the opinions out there are pretty disconcerting. Some people just think he's a moralistic teacher. And I push back on that. I say, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Because if Jesus is a moralistic teacher, he's a sadistic one. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount, and the command is to be perfect as God is perfect, you know, to pluck out my eye if I sin, to, to have this sense of sinlessness, this is, this is mean, if he can't actually empower me to do it. I say, well, okay, he's not a moralistic teacher then. He's a, I don't know, just like a good guy, maybe a prophet or something. If he's a prophet, but not actually who he claimed to be, he was deceiving people. He was misleading people. Well, then the worst is people say, well, he was non-existent altogether, which is just crazy. I mean, that's really a crazy posture. I mean, regardless of who you think he is, there is so much historical evidence for Jesus actually walking on the earth that we have to look at him and we have to say, who is he? And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And this text tells us that if you're wrong about who Jesus is, there are very grave consequences, eternal consequences. Knowing God accurately matters, and I believe we can only know him through Jesus, the Son of God. And I know that sounds like an exclusive claim, because it is. This is precisely who Jesus claims to be. 
And he can make these sorts of claims, and I know that's not popular in our culture. But just because it's not popular doesn't make it any less true. So it's not by reconstructions of people who aren't even all that interested in who Jesus is is that we find who he is. It's actually by turning to the Gospels. It's actually by turning to the Scriptures that you can know who Jesus is. And if you're asking that question, if you're trying to figure out who is this Jesus, I'd encourage you, take as long as you need to answer that question, but no longer than necessary. Take some time to read the Gospels, to get to know other Christians, to experience community like this. And I'm confident Jesus will reveal himself to you. Or are you more like Jesus' family trying to keep him tame? You see that the way of Jesus, the way of following the gospel is costly. You have to give up security, comfort. In light of this, you just try to redefine the gospel. You pick and choose the scriptures you find comfortable. Rather than embracing Jesus as he's fully revealed, you focus on the parts you like. And so he ends up looking like a, you know, a nice family man rather than a savior who demands our entire lives. Ultimately, you're mistaken. And the mistake is this. You think Jesus belongs to you rather than you belonging to Jesus. Who do you belong to? Often, we belong to ourselves, or we belong to our family, or we belong to our career. Or maybe you value freedom, you know, rather than sacrifice. And it's finally a nice sunny day in Vancouver. And so, rather than commit to worshiping with your community on Sunday you go enjoy the outdoors because, you know, God's in the outdoors. And, of course, you're not here right now to hear this exhortation, but um, you belong to enjoyment. That's who, you, that's who you belong to. Or maybe, in many of our cases, you'd rather not step on anyone's toes. You know? you, you'd rather stick to being nice. You'd rather uh, be kind than speak the truth in love. Like a good Canadian, you avoid saying the truth bluntly, Right? In the name of being polite. So you try to tell people the truth by coming in from the side, right? With this sort of half-truth, sugar-coated with lots of compliments. There's a word for that, you know. It's called lying. <laughs> Why do you do this? Why don't you speak the truth in love? You're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of rocking the boat. And ultimately, it's a fear of how you're perceived. And so really... By not speaking in the truth in love, you show that you belong to your self-image. And that how you're perceived matters more than fearing God and following him faithfully. Are you willing to repent and belong first and foremost to Jesus? Let me end with this. This is a story about accusations. Accusations made against Jesus by humanity. He's mad. He's, he's Satan. He's neither of these things. He was the only perfect, sinless life to ever grace this planet. He was God incarnate, God clothed in humanity. Think about the accusations people could make against you and me. You've harmed me. You've hurt me. You've insulted me. You've betrayed me. You've let me down. You've lied. You've cheated. You've abused me. You've neglected me. You abandoned me. Think about the accusations even Satan, the accuser, could make against us. You're a failure. You'll never change. You're weak. You're powerless. You've betrayed God. It's beyond your reach. You're hopeless. You're worthless. You've let God down. Now think more soberly about the accusations God himself could justly accuse us of. 
You've broken my holy laws. You've worshipped other gods. You've turned to everything but me because you're arrogant. You want to be your own God. You haven't done my will. If we're accused by people, by Satan, we stand guilty of most of the accusations against us. But when we stand before God against his accusations, we are guilty of every single accusation God makes of us. We have sinned against the holy creator of the world. And without help, we deserve death. What's the common thread in all of this? We haven't stayed in God's will. We're not his family. These accusations stick if we stand on our own. That this story tells us the gospel. It tells us hope. It tells us that Jesus has indeed bound the accuser and that he forgives all sins. So how do we experience this forgiveness? How do we find our guilt pardoned? How do we find ourselves freed from the accusations made against us? We look to the cross. Jesus was accused ultimately of being a blasphemer, and this was the charge that stuck. This was the charge that condemned him to death, even though he was innocent. And he followed faithfully the will of God all the way to the cross and freely gave his life. And on the cross, something significant is happening. Every just accusation people can make against us, Jesus took upon himself. Every just accusation Satan can make against us, Jesus took upon himself. Every just and true and righteous accusation God can make against us, Jesus bore the judgment of God. He was accused by humanity, Satan, and God for our sins. He died for the accusations we should have been punished for. And he did this all in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. On the cross, by the shedding of his blood, Jesus ultimately unarmed Satan and evil. The accuser can no longer accuse. He exchanged his life for ours so that the rightfully accused are acquitted. This is the good news. Through faith in Jesus, all sins can be forgiven. All sins were poured out on him. And when we belong to him, the wrath of God is satisfied on the cross. And through his blood, we can find grace to help us in the time of need. St. John puts it this way. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. It's the will of God for your life, to believe in Jesus. The will of God for your life is when you look at these accusations the world throws your way, to look to the cross, to trust that Jesus is enough, that he truly is our solid rock, the ground we stand upon. Because in him we've been washed clean of every accusation. No accusation can stick. Nobody can condemn us because God is the one who condemns and he has set us right through the cross of Christ. And most of all, through our faith in Jesus, we become children of God. We become his family, his brother, his mother, his sister. God says to us, you're mine. So if this is what Jesus accomplished for us, how could you not trust him? How could you not do his will? 